My name is Fred. I am one of the pastors here, and I am glad that you're here. If I didn't get a chance uh, to meet you on the way in, um, I would love to meet you and say hi on the way out and just get to know your name and uh, connect with you for a little bit. So, so be sure and catch me after the service. And, and as Laura said, we're in the middle of an Advent series called Wonder, which I'll talk about in, in a little bit. But it, what's interesting is as I'm preparing this message and as I'm thinking through Christmas, it always brings back these memories of my Christmas as a kid and, and being with family and, and extended family and all that. And, and as I was preparing for this message, for some reason, I had this, this thought come into my head of something that I did when I was a kid. And it involved that whole naughty and nice list. You know what I'm talking about? Where if you're on the nice list, you get whatever you want for Christmas. If you're on the naughty list, you get like coal or socks or underwear under the Christmas tree, you know, that list. Well, as a kid, I was usually pretty sure I was on the nice list. Except for one year in particular, my fourth grade year. That was a rough year in the Baker household. Uh, yours truly right here uh, um, skipped school for the first time in fourth grade. Lied to my teacher about it. And then later that year, stole money from my teacher. Yes, not a good year. That year, I was almost sure I was on the nice list, but not quite sure. So what I did is something that would guarantee, actually, that I would be put on the naughty list. Because at Christmas time, um, my grandmother, gosh, she lavished our family with presents. Now, it could have been like, like a rubber ball, but she wrapped that thing up and there was, there was all kinds of stuff under the Christmas tree. And so my job, uh, self-appointed, was to sort all the Christmas presents, right? And so I would take the Christmas presents and put all of mine in one place and all of my mom's and dad's and you know whoever else was gonna be there. But what I was doing was scoping out the presents, right? Looking at the box, is it you know, shaped like something I, was, I want? Does it, does it feel like socks, underwear, coal, you know? Uh, look at it, give it a little shake as I moved it to try and figure out what's in it. That didn't put me on the naughty list. But what I would do is there were presents that I didn't know. I couldn't determine by the look or the shake. And for kids that are in here, don't try this. But what I would do is I would very carefully peel back the tape on the wrapping. Oh, we've got some. I just saw some ahas going. You've done this, right? Peel back the tape on the present to see what was on the other side of the wrapping paper. Sometimes, though, that didn't work, right? Because my mom and dad were smart enough to use those cheap little white cardboard boxes that you put Christmas presents in. That didn't stop me. So what I would do is still, when no one was looking, take off every piece of tape, unwrap the thing, open the box to see what was inside, wrap it back up and put it in the tree where it was. Now one year, apparently Scotch tape changed their formula sometime in the late 70s, early 80s. <laughs> because what used to be easy, one year became really hard. There was this present under the tree and I couldn't figure out what it is. And I'll tell you right now what it is because I opened it to see. And it was two Atari cartridges for the, you know, for the Atari game. And, and it was two that I can't, I wish I could remember which ones they were. I wanted them. And, and, and when I opened it up, though, this is where Scotch tape must have changed their formula because when I pulled that tape back, something awful happened. It didn't rip the paper. 
it did that thing where it took this thin layer of wrapping paper off with the tape. You know what I'm talking about? Render. How do y'all know what I'm talking about? That's okay. So what happened is is it rendered the tape like I couldn't stick it back on. And so I tried to do what had worked in previous years and stick that tape back on, but nothing worked. And so it just kind of laid open. And so I tried to push it up against another present so mom and dad wouldn't see. But sure enough, my mom saw it. And she looked at me, and this is what like guaranteed my spot on the naughty list. She looked at me and said, Fred Jr., because that's when I know I'm done something bad. The rest of the year, I'm Fred, but Fred Jr. is bad news. She goes, Fred Jr., what did you do to this present? Did you open it? Y'all, I looked her square in the eyes and said, no, I don't know what happened. (laughs) Naughty list, guaranteed. Now, what's even more naughty is somebody came up to me after the first service and said, you did it all wrong. You get an iron and you put the steam on the iron, (laughs) and that's how you do it. And if I told you who it was, it would shock you if you knew her. But she, told, she said her brother taught her, but she did it too. So all that to say, this whole naughty, nice list thing, like here, here's the deal. I'm so thankful and thank you, Jesus, that there isn't a naughty and nice list. Because if there was a naughty and nice list, you know where we would all be all the time? We'd all be on the naughty list, Right? because of this word called sin. And it's a theological word, and I know it kind of rubs up against us the wrong way, but all sin is, is not doing what God asks us to do or doing what God doesn't ask us to do. And that's what sin is. And we all have sin, every single person. Because as I tell that story, like you're laughing, but some of you did that nervous laugh, right? Like, I don't know what he's talking about. But you did the same thing, right? Like we've all lied to our parents, most likely. We've all lied to somebody. We've all done something that qualifies us as sin and would put us on that naughty list. Every single one of us. And y'all, it's not just us. When you look at the Bible, every person in the Bible, like the heroes of our faith, Moses, uh, Jacob, Isaac, um, uh, Joseph, who's like the golden child of the Old Testament. They all have a life that's riddled with sin. When you look at the New Testament, you see people struggling with sin. And so every single person in the scripture, their life has that same problem of being on the naughty list, except for one person, and his name is Jesus. And he lived a life of doing what God asked him to do and not doing what God didn't want him to do. And he lived a perfect life. And in him, like if there was a naughty and nice list, he's the only one on the nice list, right? But because of the gospel, he invites us to that nice list. And I share all that to say this. Today, we're gonna be talking about this. We're gonna be talking about wonderful obedience. There it is, wonderful obedience. And I know obedience seems like one of those words that shouldn't have wonderful in front of it. But what I want us to hear today as we talk about obedience, and this is gonna get really intense, right, as we talk about obedience. I wanna tell you that up front. But I want us to know that as we talk about obedience, it's under the umbrella of the gospel. It's in this hope of Jesus. 
And that because of what Jesus has done, because he took on our sin and our shame and defeated the power of death and that sin no longer has any power or penalty over us in Jesus, we have this wonderful and marvelous hope that only comes through him. And so as we talk about obedience, church, I invite you into that hope. That wonderful obedience is only found in Jesus. And without him, Our obedience is this continual guesswork of am I naughty or am I nice? And today, I don't want anybody to leave here guessing anymore because of what Jesus has done. Now, even though every person in the Bible, their life is marked with sin, we can still look and learn from them as we read their life stories in the scriptures. And there's one person in particular that we're gonna talk about today who's part of this Advent season, and his name is Joseph. And he's the Joseph that married Mary. Uh, He's the Joseph that got to raise the Son of God for a time. And he's the Joseph uh, that, that actually, there's not a whole lot of scripture and attention given to him. But the scripture that is there about him is something that I think we can all pay attention to and all learn from. And if we do what Joseph does, our lives will be better because of it. Now, I know that's a pretty bold statement, but our lives will be better if we do what Joseph does. And men, I want you to pay particular attention today because Joseph is one of us. He's just a dude who's about to get married and gets married and is trying to figure life out. And if you're a guy, you're trying to figure your life out. And Joseph has something for us to learn. And so men, I want you to pay particular attention. Women, of course, this is for you too, but Joseph is one of us. And as we go through this series called Wonder and Advent, Um, We we are calling this Advent series Wonder because we're highlighting what makes this season so wonderful, full of wonder. And and when you think about Jesus becoming flesh and you think about like like in, in John, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Philippians, it says that he, being Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but let go of it to come to earth for us. Like when we meditate and think on that, it is awe-inspiring that a God would become human so that we could have a relationship with God. And two weeks ago, um, Nick talked about this wonderful promise that we have. And and Liv read it today from, from, from Isaiah. And how when we experience that wonderful promise, what we're gonna see today is that there can be wonderful obedience. Now, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter one. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up to there. We're gonna be in verses 18 through 25, uh, page 668. Uh, If you're using the Bible, that's in front of you. Or, like Laura said, you can download the Bible app, click on events, and click on Fellowship Asheville, and our announcements are there, links to our website are there, and the notes from today's message are there. And as you're turning there, you're probably familiar with Joseph's story, right? That he was betrothed to this young girl uh, named Mary. Most commentators believe that she was around 15, 16 years old. He was probably about the same age, maybe a little bit younger, but they were betrothed. And what betrothed means, because it's we don't have in our culture. And it's betrothed is like they're married, but they're not married is a way to think about it. It's like engagement on steroids. 
right? Because, because when we get engaged, we make this promise that we're gonna marry somebody. If for some reason we break off that engagement, it is painful and it hurts, but all it requires is changing the Facebook status, right? If you're betrothed to somebody during this season of, of engagement where you're not married, but yet you have the same commitment as being married, if you're betrothed and that relationship doesn't work out, you have to go through the process of divorce even though you haven't had an official wedding ceremony. That's how, that's how committed this betrothal relationship is between a man and a woman. And so Joseph and Mary were betrothed, and during their betrothal, they weren't living together because that's not what you did when you got betrothed. A lot of times, the, the woman still stayed at home with her mom and dad while the, the groom-to-be was building their home and getting his life ready to support and raise a family. And when he was ready and the house was done and, and he had enough income, he would come get the bride unannounced and take her and have this wedding feast. That's when the betrothal period was over. Well, Joseph and Mary are in this betrothal period and something crazy happens. His wife gets pregnant. Now, for Joseph, this was a big deal because remember, they were honorable and they were pure and yet his wife is pregnant. He knew he wasn't the daddy. Now, he had a choice ahead of him because the law of the land at that time said that if a woman committed adultery, she could be drugged out into the city square and stoned to death. Even as a betrothal, that punishment could have been levied on Mary. That Joseph could have taken her uh, to the city square, to the city center, and had her stoned to death. That was the choice that was before him, but he chose something different. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18, it says this. It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had, uh, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now notice, he loved Mary. Joseph loved Mary. And he didn't want to see her dead. And so he decided to do this kind of under the radar thing. He decided to divorce her quietly, even though her pregnancy would bring shame on him and shame on her and shame on his family and shame on her family. He decided her life was more valuable than their reputation and that he would just quietly divorce her, send her home with her parents, and that he would continue on his life without her and that they would just figure this out as they went. And it's a very reasonable and a very honorable choice. And, and here we see a little bit of Joseph's character, that he really was a respectable, honorable man. And then this happens. Look at verse uh, 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So what God did through this angel is, is, is he appeared to Joseph in a dream, and God took Joseph's plans and changed them. Anybody ever have God change your plans for you? Right? Anybody ever have a business plan, 20 pages laid out beautifully, graphs, charts, pictures, and then by the time you get to the bottom of page one, God has already changed it, right? 
Anybody have a plan for your life? And God has changed it. Well, here's what changed plans are. Changed plans are a chance for obedience. When God changes your plans, it's an opportunity to ask this very important question, what does obedience look like now? Because obedience looked like five minutes ago this plan, and now God has changed it. What does obedience look like in this plan? And that's what we're going to see in Joseph's life is what does obedience look like? Now, I'll be honest with you, my first response when God changes my plans is not that question. What does obedience look like? Oftentimes, my first response is this self-centered fear, right? Oh, no, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? What does it mean for my wife? What does it mean for our family? There's fear. There's doubt, Right? Well, did I even hear God correctly the first time? Why does he feel like he needs to do this now? What did I do wrong to be here? Is God really faithful? Is he changing my plans? Like, like, like there's those questions that come up. There's all this insecurity that comes up in me. And there's always this frustration about, oh gosh, now I gotta start over again. Like I remember, this is a complete side note and I probably don't have time to do this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I remember there was this, this girl that I had been dating and we were planning to get married. We hadn't been officially engaged yet, uh, but we, were, we had both said yes to that, that process and plat, that path and then God changed my plans. You know what my first thought was? Oh, that means I have to date again. <laughs> like how self-centered and impatient and frustrated is that. Like the thought of investing into another relationship just exhausted me. When God changes our plans, it's an opportunity for obedience. And see, in Joseph, we can see what does obedience look like when God changes our plans. Because as we look through Joseph's life, he's gonna show us. Because in this dream, God showed him, you don't need to divorce Mary. You need to marry Mary, and her story is true. And as a matter of fact, this little baby inside of her is a boy. And not only is he a boy, he is the boy that the entire nation has been waiting for. He is the Messiah that is gonna save the nation, and he is the Savior that is gonna save the world. That's who this baby is. And this was a big deal for Joseph because he knew what God wanted him to do. And this is the obvious first step in obedience, but it still needs to be said, the first step of obedience requires wisdom and wisdom is knowing what God wants you to do. Right, that's the first step of obedience is you have to know what is God asking of me. Now, the problem is that question can go a 100 different directions if left to ourselves. right? But Joseph shows us how we answer that question. Or actually, Matthew, who's writing the story of Joseph, shows us how to answer that question. Look at verse 22. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, y'all, here's the trick to God's wisdom is that God's wisdom always aligns with God's word, right? This angel of the Lord that appeared to, to, to Joseph wasn't telling Joseph, hey, God's got this whole new thing for you, right? Joseph's plans changed. God's plans did not change. 
And he was showing Joseph what he is doing is what he has always planned on doing. It's just that now's the time. And so God's wisdom always aligns with God's word. What God wants from you and for you always aligns with God's word to you, right? Obedience doesn't go against God's word. Nobody in this congregation has an asterisk by your name. You don't get to make up what God's asking you to do. He's already outlined what he wants you to do, and that's in his word. When I counsel people and they tell me that they feel like God's asking them to do fill in the blank and it goes against very clearly what God's word says, I know that God's not the one asking them to do it. Now, I don't know if it's dinner last night that's asking them to do it. I don't know if it's their own desires asking them to do it. I don't know if it's it's the spirit world, the, the evil one asking them to do it. I don't know. I don't need to know. All I know is it's not God asking them to do it. And obedience always aligns with God's word. But as Caleb pointed out a few weeks ago, knowing what God wants you to do is just part of it. Something more is required. Because look at what Joseph does next. Look at verse 24. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. So here's this great dynamic. Joseph had a plan. God changed the plan. God revealed the plan to Joseph, and Joseph did it. He did what God said to do and didn't do what God said not to do. His wife remained a virgin, and she stayed his wife. They had a baby boy, and they named him Jesus. Because you see, it's, it's one thing to know what God wants you to do, and it's another to do it, which is our second part of obedience. Wonderful obedience requires courage. And courage is the bravery to do what God wants you to do. Did you hear that? Courage is the bravery to do what God wants you to do. Because what God wants you to do always takes a step of faith. And bravery is that step of faith. And Joseph had wisdom and Joseph had courage and he knew what God wanted him to do and he had the bravery to do it and his obedience takes wisdom and takes courage. But y'all, there's something else that's in his obedience and I think this something else is what moves obedience from being obedience to being wonderful obedience. And it's something that really we can skip over if we don't see it, but it's so crucial and it's this, that wonderful obedience requires compassion. Now, compassion is this. It's understanding that whatever step of faith you take, whatever act of obedience there is, it is always for the benefit of someone else. That's compassion. That when God is asking you to do something, he's not asking you to do it for you. He's asking you to do it for the person next to you. Because your act of obedience is always for the benefit of someone else. That's compassion. And that's what moves obedience from being obedience to being something wonderful. Because you see, God told Joseph something through this angel about why their son would be born. That he would be born to save the nation of Israel from their sins. He would be born to save the world from their sins. Now this son 
that was in Mary's belly at the time. And this is where this story, man, it hinges. Joseph could have taken his wife out into the city courts and killed his wife and killed this son in her belly if he had wanted. But he realized that his act of obedience wasn't for him. It wasn't for his reputation. It wasn't for his family's reputation. That his act of obedience was for the entire world. That his act of obedience would save the nation of Israel. That's what compassion is. You see, men, when the scripture asks you to obey, it is not just for you. It is not so you can have a a pure heart and clean eyes. It is for the person next to you. That your act of obedience is for your friends, it's for your roommates, it's for your spouse, it's for your kids, it's for your family. Your act of obedience is for those around you. And here's what I love about Joseph's story. This isn't Joseph's shining moment of obedience, right? Because when we turn to the next chapter, guess what? We see Joseph do this again, and we see him do it again. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, uh, what happens is, is, you know, not to give any spoilers, but Jesus is born, and you know, they name him Jesus, and, and, and you know, the whole manger scene, you've got that in your head, and then wise men show up. Not to give you any spoilers, too, we're going to be doing a sermon about this on January 6th, after Christmas. The reason we're doing it after Christmas is, is because the wise men were there later. Most commentators think why the wise men showed up two years after the birth of Jesus. So, in your nativity scene at home, if your nativity scene is in the living room, put the wise men in the kitchen, because they're not there yet. <laughs> right? So these guys show up. Jesus is probably a toddler, which means there is no manger. And the saddest part for me is there is no drummer boy because I love that song, right? But the wise men show up and then they leave. And listen to what happens to Joseph in verse 13 of chapter two. It says, now when they had departed, that's the Magi leaving, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And so again, we see the same pattern. There's wisdom. Right? He knew what God asked him to do because look at verse 15. It says, And remain there until the death of Herod, and this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet out of Egypt, I've called my son. And so this wisdom aligned with God's word. And so Joseph knew what God was asking him to do. He had the bravery to do it. And again, there's that thing of compassion that this is God's son that he was raising, not his son. And that this son would save, be the child to save the world. And then if you look at verse 19, you see it again. But when Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, 
so that what was was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And so here we see this wisdom, courage, and compassion again. And so for you, if you're in a situation where God has changed your plans, and you ask the question, what does obedience look like here? What does obedience look like now? Let me tell you what obedience looks like. It looks like the decision that takes wisdom. Knowing what God is asking you to do and that that aligns with his word. It looks like the decision that takes courage and bravery to do it. And it looks like the decision that is for the benefit of others, not just yourself. That's what obedience looks like. Now, I'm gonna ask you some questions and this is gonna get kind of intense a little pointed as we go through this. Men, I want you to pay attention. Women, I want you to pay attention too. But remember, guys, Joseph is one of us. If he can do this, we can do this, right? Let me try that again, guys. Joseph is one of us. I know you said it in your heart. I just wanna hear it from your mouth. Joseph is one of us. If he can do this, we can do this, right? See, there you go. That's better. So let me ask you some questions about this wonderful obedience that acquires wisdom and courage and compassion. What does wonderful obedience look like to you in your life? Where are you wrestling with the question of what does obedience look like? So let me ask you, do you know what God is asking you to do? Do you know what God is asking you to do? When you look at your life, Now, here's the litmus test, and this is where it's going to get a little pointed. When you look at your life, how much is God's word a part of your life, right? Because if God's going to ask you to do something, or if dinner last night is going to ask you to do something, or if the spirit world is going to ask you to do something, and you don't have a working knowledge of God's word, how in the world are you going to know if it's God or something else? And so if, if your life Is a baseball field, is God's word on the pitcher mound or is it like out in left field where I played when I was in Little League? Because I was that kid, right? Is God's word central to your life? If not, I may have a reason why. And it goes back to that whole naughty and nice list. Maybe, maybe it's because of sin that God's word isn't central in your life. Maybe there's a sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. Maybe there's something that you're holding on to that you don't need to hold on to anymore. And literally my prayer for this Sunday, my prayer for this service is that we leave this place a more pure people than we walked in. Because we have let go of a sin that has so easily entangled us. We have let go of a lie that we have believed instead of holding on to the truth that we know. That's my prayer for us. And if that's you, I've got some good news and then I've got some better news for you. And the good news is this. That sin that you hold on to, that sin has already been dealt with. Take that baby in a manger and fast forward his life and he's on a cross. 
And in that in-between time, he lived a life doing exactly what God wanted him to do and not doing exactly what God didn't want him to do. He lived a life of perfection. He lived a life that would get him on the nice list. Although all of us have been on the naughty list, and yet that baby grew into a man and died the death of a criminal on a cross. Right, And he was crucified on a cross. And there was a moment when he was on that cross that he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he took on the sin of the world and he experienced something that he had never experienced in all of eternity. And that is a momentary separation and fellowship from God the Father and from God the Holy Spirit. And he experienced that for you and for me because he took on our sin. And when he did that, that sin that we believe, that lie that we believe, that sin that we hold on to, that sin that so easily entangles us, it lost its power that day for the rest of eternity. And so when you say yes to Jesus, you get a reward that you didn't earn. You get a Christmas present that no nice list would get you because you get a relationship with God, the God who loves you and the God who created you. And so if you've never said yes to Jesus, and it really is that simple, that he is your savior, that this savior was born into the world to save the world, was born into the world to save you. When you say yes to him as your savior, that sin has no more power in your life That's the good news. The better news is that that sin still has no power in your life. Because a lot of you in this room have said yes to Jesus. And maybe it was at camp. Maybe it was at church. Maybe you raised your hand. Maybe you met with a pastor. Maybe you knelt and said a prayer. But at some point in your life, you said yes to Jesus. And the great news is that the gospel that saved you is the same gospel that sustains you. That you need that gospel today just like you needed it then. Because the sin that you hold on to today, the sin that is powerless and the sin that has no power over you, the reason you hold on to it is because the only power it has is the power that you've given it because Jesus has already said it's powerless. And yet you hold on to it. And the good news, the better news, is that you can let it go because it has already been dealt with. You are forgiven for that. And you can confess it as sin, turn away from it, that's what repentance means, and move on. Because God has a plan for you, a calling for you, and he's got this God-sized purpose for you. Which leads me to my next question. Do you have the bravery to do it? Do you have the bravery to go where God is asking you to go and to do what God is asking you to do? Do you have the bravery to stop doing what God has said stop doing? Sometimes that takes a whole lot more bravery than to going where God has said go is to stopping when God has said stop. And y'all, I have some good news here. That bravery doesn't come from you either. Because when you said yes to Jesus, you were indwelled with the Holy Spirit and you've got God inside of you and that bravery comes from trusting God and realizing that he is the faithful one. And y'all, I'll tell you, and I've said this time and time again, this church has been like the biggest step of obedience and faith in my life. 
Like when I ask that question, has God changed your plans? The fact that I'm standing up here behind this little bistro table teaching his word to you was never a plan in my life, ever. And yet here I am because God didn't just change my plans. He twisted them and turned them and flipped them upside down. Here's the deal. Every step of faith requires faith that God is who he says he is and he can do what only he can do. And that bravery is trusting that the Holy Spirit inside of you is right and it is good. And trusting that God is a faithful God. Anybody in here have a hard time trusting God? Let me tell you, as I stand up here being attacked by a wasp behind this bistro table that I never thought I'd be in, he is worthy and he is faithful. You will never regret saying yes to him. And finally, is your obedience for the good of another. You see, your obedience can't be about making you feel better because oftentimes saying yes to God means that it's gonna be painful for you. And there may be hurt and there may be pain for you for the benefit of somebody else. Spoiler, that's what Jesus did. He took on the pain, he took on the hurt, he took on losing that community with the Father and the Spirit for you and for me. Is your obedience for the benefit of somebody else? Now we're gonna close off today. Here's, here's what I want, and I really mean this, like for us to leave this place today more clean and more pure and confessing what needs to be confessed and repenting of what needs to be repented of than we did when we came in. And so we're gonna end the service today with just a little bit of time of quiet and prayer because I want you to say yes to God where he is asking you to say yes and to say no where he is asking you to say no and to let go of whatever it is that you're holding on to that's preventing that. So I'm gonna start us in prayer and then give a little bit of silence and then close us in prayer and then we'll, we'll do one more song of worship.